WHQR Public Media in Wilmington, North Carolina, this is Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. It was 2022 when Tom Erickson made the decision to close the transplanted garden, which had provided plants, garden supplies, and expertise to thousands of local residents. For almost a quarter century, the decision was painful for Tom and for his community of customers who'd come to rely on him for planting and landscaping advice, troubleshooting for years. The decision was for intensely personal reasons, which we're not going to get into today, but someday, perhaps, if the time is ever right. He's appeared on Coastline about half a dozen times, and today I am so thrilled to welcome him back to share some plant guidance, specifically what to plant during the slightly colder winter months, how to deal with weather and temperatures that can change by 40 degrees in one 24-hour period, and what your winter garden to-do list should look like. Tom Erickson, welcome back to Coastline. It's great to be back here and to see you again. The last time we did this, it was a Zoom, so it was... That's right. Not quite as personal. During the height of the pandemic. Yes, that was so much fun. Bad audio and weird connections, yes. So as we were just talking about before we started, the New Hanover County Arboretum, the Cooperative Extension, and and other entities came together to give away native trees and grasses recently in January. Why is winter such a good time to plant trees? Well, the... The big stress around here is not generally so much the winter, but it's the summer heat that really takes a toll on plants. And by getting them planted now while, you know, these trees they were giving out, I guess were bare root, they may have some of them been potted, um, they get to get a root system going before they have to leaf out and they can slowly root in before they, this process begins, and the heat comes on, say, in June and July and August and September and sometimes October. So when people are planting these these small seedlings, I mm-hmm. suppose they are, what are some of the biggest mistakes that, that people can make with them, and what do they need to think about when they're planting them themselves? Well, they need to take, first off, if it's a, if it's a root ball, if it's a potted plant, you need to take it out of the pot. And what I like to do is loosen up the roots. If it's really, if there's a lot of roots going in circles, I'll even take shovel and just slice, you know, gently into the root system to get it to move out of that, you know, constant circular motion. Um, and then I like to get the whole prepared, set it in there, get some compost to mix in with it so it has a little better, better soil retention. You don't need to go extra deep. You need to go extra wide. If you go too deep, then it'll settle and become a low point, and then you can have problems with uh, water sitting around the trunk and rotting the bark. Um, but if you get the whole dug, set the plant in there after you've loosened up the root ball, water it a couple of times to make sure that root ball is wet inside. Because if it's a bone dry root ball, it's like pouring water on flour, it just rolls off. And so what you need to do is get that root ball wet by filling the hole two or three times, then finish the planting process and water it again to make sure everything settles in properly. Now, obviously, the trees that these folks were giving away at Independence Mall recently were all native trees. Mm-hmm. That, that's a, a big point of right. this. But we've seen trees like Bradford pears be a popular choice for developers for quite a while. Yeah. 
now they are seemingly the most hated tree everywhere. First of all, can you describe what a Bradford pear looks like and why they were so popular to begin with? Well, it's got big, bright white flowers very early in the spring. It's one of the earliest trees to start blooming. And it's got a very child's lollipop kind of a tree shape to it. So it's it's not loose and leggy and floppy looking. It's got a very perfect shape to it. Um, and in the fall, it does have absolutely amazing foliage. And around here, that foliage doesn't change until Thanksgiving or even, you know, early December. So it, it hangs on for a long time. It can still, there can still be leaves depending on the weather and severity and storms in just before Christmas. So it is, it has some virtues to it, but the negatives way more outweigh that. What are the negatives? Why do people hate it so much now? Well, it smells horribly. Pear trees have <laughs> just, even the fruiting pears have a bad odor to them. Um, what would you compare it to? Um, it's very heavy, dusty, kind of, it's not real sweet. It's just sort of a lingering dead fish kind of a smell mm. um, is what I've heard described. Um, a number of years ago, the city of Pittsburgh banned them because there were so many in the city that when <laughs> they came into bloom, the whole the whole city smelt like dead fish. <laughs> so uh, they, they've been banned, but the, also one of the other things is they are extremely invasive. They produce huge numbers of tiny little pea-sized pears um, that the birds will eat and then disperse the seed everywhere. I've been in Raleigh and seen where the high tension lines go through a whole section of trees. On either side of the edge of the woods, there's, I just happened to catch it right, there's all these little Bradford pear seedlings blooming you know, bright, screaming white, so it makes it very easy to identify them, and it went as far as I could see. Um, down on Carolina Beach Road, heading towards Monkey Junction on the left, there's some pine forest there that's come up. It used to be the old fairgrounds, and Bradford pears are coming up all over the place in there because the neighborhoods behind them, one of which I lived in, um, everybody got a Bradford pear or I don't know, there was one other tree that everybody got in front of their house along with the same five bushes in the front of the house. And so there was this just huge number of Bradford pears not far from there that the birds brought the seeds in. Now, many people uh, also have these non-native Japanese maple trees. What do you do with those? I mean, those are still, I think, hugely popular. They're very popular, area. but they don't come up all over the place from seed. I've only seen on large, I've seen in a couple old large estates when I used to work in, in, in Connecticut, where they would, you'd see seedlings underneath a tree because there was a lot of leaf litter. It wasn't mowed. It wasn't tended to. It just, you know, kind of went wild. So you'd get these seedlings in there. And that's really the only time I've ever seen um, seedlings of Japanese maples in any quantity. Um, so and, they're not going to choke out other naturally no, and, forested and, areas. No, and or... they're, you know, they're small. The weeping varieties are small trees. I mean, I've, the biggest ones I've ever seen are maybe eight or 10 feet tall, and they're, you know, 150 years old. Um, 
Some of the more upright ones can get to 20 or 25 feet. So it's not like it's going to create such a tall canopy and shade out, you know, other native trees. The red maple is the native. The red in, maple, in our yeah, which area. is it's named red maple because of the flowers are red. And you start starting to see those in bloom now. I've seen a, a few here and there. I mean, they're all very variable in their blooming time because of pockets of warm air or cooler spots, um, just the natural variation of their sequence of bloom. Is that something that we need to prune? Because in one of your newsletters, when you had the transplanted garden open, you would send out regular newsletters. And in one of them, you talked about being careful about how to prune them because a certain kind of, maybe it wasn't the red maple, but they can bleed mercilessly. Yeah, if you prune the, if you prune the maples in the, this time of year um, or even in the next several weeks, what happens is the sap starts to rise and then it bleeds out of the plants. Um, it's best to do it in the in the dead of winter when, you know, the plants are good and dormant, you can do it then and hopefully it heals up enough. But really the best time to prune a maple is in midsummer, which does make it more difficult because you can't see the structure of the plant. But it's, it's much better for the tree to not lose all that sap by pruning it in, say, February or March. Is it important to prune it? Not really. The only thing you really need to do is take out crisscrossing branches or dead wood. And, I mean... You can see what's crisscrossing enough in, you know, the um, the summer season. You can see what's laying or resting on another branch. It was not that long ago you said that you'd lost some trees in your own garden yeah. because of the hurricane. <clears throat> and you replanted some more mature trees so that you could get back your privacy right. and not have to right. wait it, for them to It's grow. coming. It's not quite there yet, but it is coming. I used um, Virginia, the native Virginia cedar. Um, it was a selected variety um, that stays nice and green during the winter. Some of them turn a really horrible bronzy reddish color. Um, but I, I've got that in the garden and I like that for the, it provides cover for the birds and they do like the berries on them. Um, you don't think about juniper with berries, but that's how you get gin. Um, yes. So I planted one of those. I did plant some non-natives, but I mean, I've got a lot of hollies in my yard already. And I've got hickories and I've got a lot of other native trees that just were there. I've added the hollies. So, I mean, I've got a mix of native and non-native because I needed a few things that would grow quickly that would give me some cover. I planted a tree form loripetalum that people are familiar with for the purpley leaves um, and the pink the pink flowers. It's a cousin to witch hazel. It's a Chinese. So it's it's somewhat, you know, not to, it's not native, but it's at least a cousin of something that we do have here. Um, and I planted um, a different maple, a Shantung maple, which is from an area of China, which is similar to our climate. So um, and it's got very good foliage. It's a nice grower. It's not it doesn't get huge, but it's got a really nice um growth habit to it. And I want to hear, I, I don't think we're going to have time before we go to break, but how you got those mature trees planted, because you did have to use professionals. So we'll, well, yeah. we'll get to that okay. when we come back from this break. You're listening to Coastline. It's a look at winter planting in the Cape Fear region with Tom Erickson, formerly of the Transplanted Garden. After this short break, a few ideas on how to help your plants cope with this unpredictable and often unseasonable weather. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Stay with us. 
You're listening to Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. Tom Erickson is my guest today. You may know him as co-owner of the Transplanted Garden, a Wilmington Garden and Landscaping supply store that had a passionate following and a good long run. Tom Erickson closed the store in 2022 after nearly a quarter century of providing plants and advice on how to create beautiful green spaces. And just to kind of go back to that discussion about trees, Tom, if someone was planting mature trees and it, you know, it's beyond what you can do on your own, how do you, what is that process? And is that something that you would advise people to, to do, or is it just better to get the smaller things and watch them grow? Well, it, it, it makes for immediate impact, and a lot of people want that. They don't want to wait five, ten years for a tree to, you know, mature, or 20 years. But the first thing you're going to need to do get, before you start doing this is get out your checkbook, because it's not cheap. I mean, it, you're probably talking a couple of thousand dollars a day to rent a crane. Uh, it's been a while since I've had to do that. I did that once here in Wilmington where we brought in some 30-foot holly trees uh, for a customer. And then you've got the price of the tree, then you've got all the labor, and the tree is probably the cheapest thing of all of it because it's a lot of labor. I mean, if it's an area where you can't get a backhoe into, you're going to have to hand dig, and if you're talking an eight-foot-wide diameter root ball, that's a lot of labor. Yeah. And then, you know, if you've got a You've got to take the trees off the tractor trailer that they come in on and that there may be anywhere from two to three or, you know, depending on the size per truck because you've got a 20 or 30 foot tall tree plus the root ball that might be three feet deep and eight feet in diameter. So, I mean, it's not an, an inexpensive, you know. Process. There's a reason people buy smaller trees and yeah. watch them grow. Right. And I mean, you know, look. Not everybody can afford that, but I mean the trees that I put in. I mean they were they weren't a bare root, or they weren't like in a three or a five gallon pot. I brought in some twenty five and thirty gallon pot trees that you know was manageable with a tree dolly to move the trees around and get in there and you know hand dig them. So it wasn't it wasn't like I spent twenty thousand dollars on three trees. It was you know, right. it was more manageable. You first talked about crepe murder on Coastline probably back in 2015. That's that's a guess. And since then, I, that was the first time I'd heard that term. And since yeah. then, I've seen it in other places. And recently, folks on a neighborhood social media app were having their own debate about to prune or not to prune. And some people were screaming that it was crepe murder, which made me laugh. And it made me wonder if they knew you. Yeah. So for those who haven't heard about crepe murder Give us that rundown. What is it? It's the coppicing of the trees or hard, hard pruning back to the same point year after year. And what it does is it produces great, big, strong growth points. So you get these exaggerated blooms at the end of each stem. And because they're so exaggerated and the, the stems are new, they're not as strong. So they have a tendency to weep over. And, you know, I've seen where they... They just kind of come up and weep over like a cherry tree. And then, you know, as you're walking through the yard, if you're not paying attention, you get slapped in the face with a crepe myrtle bloom that might be <laughs> 15, 18, 20 inches, you know, long. Um, and it's, there's just really no reason for it. If, you, if this is the time of the year to apply the superphosphate, to pump the, the flower production up, um, and 
if you put that down, you know, in mid to late January, early February, you'll get your flowering that you want without having to, um, you know, just bastardize the trees. When I first moved here, that whole stretch of uh, college from, say, Wrightsville Avenue all the way up to the overpass, there were crepe myrtles there, and they would cut them back to just ridiculousness. And I, I lectured at the, um, the old Arboretum Garden Show years ago uh, about crepe murder, and, you know, there's no reason <laughs> to do this. And I went out and I took pictures of crepe myrtles that had been for decades just chopped and took pictures of them all over town. And I stopped at that section of college there and took a picture. I was looking up right in front of the McDonald's there by um, – Wrightsville Avenue. I took a picture and I didn't notice it at first. I wasn't looking for it, but there was the wrong way sign on the side <laughs> of the road in bright red in front of this row of crepe myrtles. And so that was the first photo when I was doing the lectures that I would use to start the lecture. And I would always get a huge roar of laughter out. Yeah. And um, I still have those slides. I've got to pull it out and see if I can find it. Maybe we can post it online. Um, but um, it was it, 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 there's just really no reason for it. Um, it. You said there are exaggerated blooms that you get from that. Well, but you get fewer you, bloom, you get fewer blooms, but each cluster is bigger. Okay. So, um, so it's absolutely unnecessary. It's absolutely unnecessary. And we've talked about palm trees before. A lot of people who move here love palm trees. There are some types that are uh, absolutely non-native but surviving here, and others like the sable palm right. are part of the native ecosystem. Sables, also known as palmettos, right. can grow pretty tall. What? How? What's the best way to take care of those? They need to be. Um, cleaned up so that you don't have liability of the leaves falling and knocking somebody in the head because after a while, the, the foliage will naturally fall off. Um, it takes quite a while. The leaves are usually there for two or three years at least before they start to bend down. And as they start to get to a 45-degree angle, 45 angle pointing at the ground, that's when you want to remove them um, because the, the plant will pull the nitrogen that's in those leaves back out. And if you do it too soon, you start to pull the nitrogen out of the plant. So um, take those, and it's best if you can to cut the flower stalks off before they start to set seed. I mean, you can cut them, I and mean, they are pretty when they're in bloom. Um, and they can, but if you don't take them out um, before the seeds mature, you end up with carpets of seedlings under the plants. And then that can become, you know, kind of an issue because you really have to hand pull them. Weed killers don't seem to work very well on them. Um, but the, the sable palmettos, the, the great big full-size trees, it used to be that the last native northern stand of those was on Baldhead Island. And now that they've been planted here and the climate is changing and creeping nor northward, it's not a problem to plant them here anymore. Before, they needed the protection of the water, the ocean temperatures um, there, and it, they didn't used to grow here. It was too cold. It, it was got too, too cold. cold. So you would see them, you know, in places right on the coast. But when I first moved here, everybody told me you couldn't plant them in Brunswick County because it was too cold. And the same thing with the um, the um, 
the Boudia palms, the silvery blue ones, the big feathery leaves, you, those wouldn't work out there either. And when I first, when my parents first moved to Emerald Isle, they would take the palms there and wrap the the tips of them up with burlap and then put plastic over it so the water wouldn't get in there and freeze and kill them. They don't do that anymore. Well, let's talk about this crazy weather because it's not just warmer, it's all over the place. It is all I over mean, the place. I mean, just, you know, we, we regularly during January are getting to freezing or just below freezing. And then a day later, we'll have temperatures in the 70s. Oh, yeah. I mean, when I, I we've had days in the 80s, yeah. you know, in January. And um, someone last year had bought a, a Japanese maple the year before. And last spring, she wanted to know why the plants she planted died. And I told her it was climate change, and she didn't believe me. She didn't want to hear it. She wanted me to replace the plant, and I mean, I just that was never an issue with me unless there was a disease that came with that that plant when when it came in. Um, and what happened is we had a couple of nights last winter, a year ago, where we were so warm, say eighty, even eighty-five, and then we dropped down to twenty, like in a day. Mm-hmm. And what happens is, is we had been so warm that entire winter that the sap never really went down into the roots. It stayed in the trunk. And so what happened is when we, when we all of a sudden plummeted to 20 degrees, we ha- the sap froze and it split the bark and it killed the tree. I mean, it's, and we had this problem five, six years ago. No, it was longer than that. Uh, we had it was probably 15 years ago. We had a winter where we had been in the 80s for two solid weeks in April, the first two weeks of April, and all of a sudden, one Saturday night, just one, we dropped down to 17. Mm-hmm. And I had neighbors that had 30-year-old Japanese maples, literally just the bark, the trunk split all the way through vertically. Wow. Is there anything to be done if we know that's going to happen? <sighs> Not well. really. I mean, you might try wrapping the trunk with some insulation to see if that would help. But, I mean, which tree do you do it to? Mm-hmm. I mean, this one the one maple I can think of was getting the sun in the afternoon. So the sap was probably even more active going up the tree. It was at the backside of the house with the western sun. And it's just, it's so random. I mean, a neighbor had a crepe myrtle that exploded. Um, I had a crepe myrtle in my yard that was 20 feet tall. It was multiple trunks that were four or five inches in diameter. And apparently it had happened to it as well. And I didn't realize it because that season, it seemed fine. The next season, it lost its leaves early, prematurely, but not horrendously. The third year, it started to come out. It was leafing out. It was a very early blooming crepe myrtle, one called Fantasy, which just blooms once in the early um, summer. And it came out. It started to bloom. We had rain. It was wilted. The rain got the blooms to open, and two days later, the whole tree was just stone dead. Is there anything that we can do with other kinds of plants with this crazy weather? I mean, if you can cover, uh, you can take tarps. That that winter we had all sorts of plants at the garden center. I mean, it was the first two weeks of April, and it was like 
April 12th or 15th when we should have had hibiscus and hanging pots of Austin ferns and flats of impatiens and all those things, and we did. And so we moved everything we possibly could into the building, into the greenhouses, and just prayed. And then we took and laid everything down, and we put um, tarps over the plants, and we put plastic over the tarps. And what that did is it 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 um, captured the heat that was in the ground. You laid everything down. We laid everything over. Okay. And then we, That's... you know, can't do that once right. it's in the ground. Right, right. But because everything was potted, we laid everything down. We took everything off of tables, and we covered it with tarps, and then we put plastic over that as much as we had. And that was enough insulation for that one night. And it took us two days to put everything away. Um, And then because we had worked so hard, we were sore. And it took us three days to pull it all back out. And we were still finding things tucked under wherever. But that was enough. Just trapping that heat coming out of the ground was enough to get it to... um, Pretty much everything survived. We lost a couple of things, but compared to what we had, we had, you know, $100,000 or more plant material on the ground, and we saved it all. You're listening to Coastline. We're talking with Tom Erickson, former owner of the Transplanted Garden. If we go ahead and plant some of these plants that do well in cooler weather, uh, I noticed you say there are some actual cool weather herbs yeah. that people can be planting. What are those? Um, things like parsley, dill that will take cool weather. Now, it's best to start those indoors um, because what happens is if they, if you start them outside and they get hit with a real blast of cold, what happens is as they continue to grow, they're going to come up and go right to, to bloom and to seed. It's that cold that induces the, the flowering. Um, they're basically biennials where you can sow the seed in the fall and have them go through the winter and get, and get through. But if they get too much cold, they're going to want to go to seed. So it, you can start them potted now inside. And then as things warm up, you can slowly move them outside into some shade, out of the wind so they don't get wind wilt and a cold wilt. Um, but you start moving them out into a little more sun, a little more sun, and then um, they'll be ready for the season. They'll go through the whole summer. But if you try to put them out too early, they're going to get that cold shock and go to seed. What is too cold for them? I would say, you know, upper 20s is fine. But if they get into mid-20s and lower, that's going to induce the blooming. Uh, but you can get your vegetables, seeds going. You can get your, your lettuces. You can get... Um, you can get things like salad greens. You can get those going inside and do the same thing as the lettuces or the, the parsley and the dill and get those moved outside. And then, in, you know, another month they can be planted outside. I'm going to probably maybe this weekend start my peas. I do that the end of, end of January up north in Connecticut. It was St. Patrick's Day was when you started your peas. Here it's the end of January because we're that much further south, so the season starts that much earlier. Um, you can start getting things in a, probably another couple of weeks, you know, there, maybe another three weeks, things like peppers, eggplant, tomatoes, which take a little longer to grow before you can get them outside. But you want to get them out while it's still fairly cool, even if there may still be a chance of frost, because if you, do, if you set them out too late, then it gets too hot and they stop blooming and then they don't produce. So there's a tricky balance with some of those crops. But any like radishes, carrots, beets, all those can be planted now early, directly into the ground. 
What should we be pruning while we're still technically in winter, even if some of these days it doesn't feel like it? What needs pruning before it starts budding? Well, you can prune a lot of your evergreens, things like the fall blooming camellias, which are done for the season. Those can be pruned. You can start pruning the um, japonica camellias, the the winter spring blooming varieties, um, as they finish blooming. Uh, those will work. You don't want to prune things like Laurapetalum because they bloom on the old wood. You don't want to prune things like your mop head and your lace cap hydrangeas. If you start pruning those, you're going to lose all your blooms. Um, when the hydrangeas are old enough, you can go in this time of the year and take out about a third of the old, old stems, the biggest, fattest stems, right down to the ground. And what that'll do is it'll help open up the plant for better air circulation so you don't have as many disease problems later on in the summer when it gets hot and humid. Um, you so can, you say, hold on a second because hydrangeas have always been confusing to me. Yeah. Just because there that was so many. One of the, <laughs> one, of the variety, one of the biggest questions we always had was, you know, when can I prune my hydrangeas? Why didn't my hydrangeas bloom this year? I'd ask them, when did you prune them? said, well, I cut them to the ground in, in December. I don't want to look at all those sticks. And the flowers on hydrangeas, the mop heads, and the lace caps are at the top of last year's stems. Those buds are there. If you go out and look at them now, they're big and fat and swelling. And actually, I've seen a few leaves pop with that last warm weather we had. And that's going to continue to happen after that rain we had. I had almost three inches of rain at my house. Further into town, we got, you know, three quarters of an inch, inch, and inch and a quarter. But I had heard Carolina Beach had three and a third inches, and I am not far from there. And I know I had something similar. Um, but with all that rain and the warm weather coming now, things are going to start popping. And you can prune hydrangeas like Annabelle's. They are different than the mop heads. You can prune those back as far as you want because they'll bloom on new growth. Um, the same thing with limelight hydrangeas. So you have to know what kind of hydrangea right. you have. Right. Before you start pruning it. Right. I mean, if it's blue or pink, leave it alone. If the white, the white Annabelles, I mean, they're white, there are white lace caps and white mop heads as well. But the Annabelles, the real old-fashioned one that everybody's grandmother had a big patch of in the backyard, <laughs> um, my grandmother included, and I had them in my first house, um, they can be cut back as far as you want. The limelight hydrangeas, you can do the same thing as well, the ones with those cone shapes. But don't prune the oak leaf hydrangeas. They have cone-shaped flowers, but they have the different foliage. The but we can still go in and prune, as you said, the older the sticks older wood. near the base. Right. Because even if there are buds on those, right. we're still allowing still for oxygen air. to right. move through the plant. Right. Okay. So, so the mop heads and lace caps you want to leave alone, but you can prune out some of the older stems. The Annabelles and, and Limelights, you can cut back as far as you want and leave the, the oak leaves alone until af just after they're done blooming. You're listening to Coastline. Landscaping expert Tom Erickson is my guest today. We'll have more from him after this short break. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline.
are listening to Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. Tom Erickson is my guest today. He's the former owner and co-founder of the Transplanted Garden, which served the greater Wilmington area for almost 25 years. And he is, without a doubt, our resident plant expert and troubleshooter. Are there, are there any plants, Tom Erickson, that are good bloomers in the winter around here, if you want to have a pretty backyard? Well, camellias, obviously, that's one. I mean, it's not native, but they're all over the place, and they do very well here because they're n- native to coastal humid areas in China and Japan, so it's very similar to our climate. Um, I've got those in my yard. I've got a number of them in my yard. I love them. I mean, because the winter has always been when I've had more time to be in my yard during the spring and summer, and I didn't get much. Um but they work very well. Hellebores do work very nicely. They need shade. They'll take a little bit of morning sun or some dappled sun, but they don't like the hot sun. Um, and you've got to be careful which ones you do plant. It's the Lenten rose, not the Christmas rose that does best here. It tolerates the heat and humidity the best. So there's a lot of hybrids that have various parentage. And, you know, a lot of those don't do as well as just the straight species. And you will get a great variation of colors in the species, anywhere from white to maroons and everything in between as far as pinks go. Um, Tea olives, I love those for the fragrance. I have an orange-flowered one in my yard. Um, Do those produce fruit? No, they don't. They're just tiny little flowers. I've never seen any seed or fruit capsules on them anywhere. Um, They just bloom intermittently in the mild periods starting in late fall, usually sometime in October, and you'll see them um, throughout the winter until April, and then they kind of give up for the season. It just gets too warm and they start growing. Um, The um, native vine, the Carolina jessamine, that's very nice. I love the fragrance on that. It's almost kind of like freesia. And does that bloom in the winter? Yes. It, it, uh, it, it, it'll bloom if we have warm enough spells in the winter. What does it look like? It's uh, an evergreen vine with little narrow willowy kind of leaves. And then it's got a bright daffodil yellow uh, trumpet flower to it. And that is very, very nice. You see it. If you travel the highways in the, in the wintertime, you'll see it growing in the median of the highway, usually in some moisture areas, not wet, but a little on the moist side. And that has a nice fragrance. The butterflies do go after it in a few odd balls that are around. And it'll bloom until early April. So it's very nice. It is considered poisonous. So if you have pets, you know, you might watch where you plant it with them. Um, I have never heard of anyone dying from it. But, you know, if you eat enough of anything, it'll kill you. (laughs) So. So throughout this conversation, you and I have talked about natives and non-natives, just sometimes identifying what's what, but not not about why. And as you know, several months ago, we had Barbara Sullivan on, who recently wrote a book oh, called She's Climate. a good friend. Yes, right. Yeah. And the two of you have been on together yes. many times. And she, this book is Climate Change Gardening for the South, where she really kind of dives into the science behind Uh, the importance of native plants and what that does. And it it certainly shifted the way I viewed it and my understanding of the whole issue and why it was even more important than I thought before. Has... What's your thinking around that? How do you see this? I mean, I have a mix of 
plants in my yard that are native and non-native. And I, there are a lot of very nice looking natives, but there's a lot of natives that, you know, just aren't all that attractive. And it's good to have some of those, you know, some natives in the yard because you have very specific insects, like Barbara was talking, that go for very specific plants. I mean, you look at the, the um, some of the caterpillars that go after specific only plants in the yard. And um, so I, I like having a mix. I mean, I'm not adverse. I've got goldenrod in my yard. There's a spot of it where it's come up in my ginger lilies, and there's no separating the two. So I just let everybody go. Um, there are some weeds that are in my yard that seem to attract the same caterpillars that like to eat my rosemary. So I try to keep that. It's a little tiny grayish green ground cover kind of a thing. I'm not even sure what it's called, but I've seen the caterpillars on that that get into the my rosemary and my sage and some of those, you know, the woody herbs. Um, so I try to get that out of the yard because it's just an attractant. Um, but uh, And I want to ask you in a second about some of those diseases and pests that we regularly see. Uh, but first, I just want to mention there is a native plant finder if people are interested in finding out what is actually native to this area. It's nwf.org. There's a banner across the top of that website, Native Plant Finder, and you just plug in your zip code. And of course, we'll put it in the resources for this episode at whqr.org. But those caterpillars that show up with regularity on my rosemary, what do you do about them? What I do is I use um, Bt. It's a bacteria. And it doesn't harm anything but caterpillars. Uh, and it has little effect on anything else. It may have some effect on the adults. But it gets to the point where if you don't apply it to the rosemary, they will kill it. I mean, I've had numbers, many, many customers who've had problems with that. And like I said, it gets on the sage, it gets on oregano, it gets on marjoram. And you'll see, like, they... They chew up the leaves and make little cocoons out of it and hide in there until they mature and then they hatch out. I'm not even sure what the adults look like. Um, all I know is that I've got them all over my plants. So I, what I do is rather than using like a spray bottle, because the rosemary I have is about three feet tall and wide, I'd end up with carpal tunnel syndrome, you know, <laughs> by the time I cover the entire plant. So what I do is I mix it up in a watering can put the spray head on the watering can, and then just douse the plants with it. And it takes two minutes to mix it up and drop it on everything rather than mixing up in a sprayer or a spray bottle or, you know, what, however else. And it gets good coverage. And it, it, about every three, maybe four weeks during the summer, once we start to get warm, and it keeps them away keeps them at bay. I rinse it out well and clean it so that I don't get it on something else that I do want the caterpillars on, you know, to come on. I've got, I try to grow dill and fennel for the um, butterflies. Um, and I've had varying degrees of horrible success with that. Um, Why I do you say horrible? Well, I get dozens and dozens of caterpillars and then I have wrens and they come in and eat them all. So last summer I bought, it's a zip-up tent, screen tent that I bought, and I'm going to pot up the, my, some dill, some fennel in that. I'll leave it open till I see the caterpillars, then I'll zip it up and keep, the, keep everybody playing well by, you know, 
keeping the wrens off of. I've got, I have wrens that'll have several broods of young, and I enjoy them. They eat, they eat all sorts of bugs. I've seen them tear heads off of giant cockroaches. So I really like the wrens. I just don't <laughs> like them eating my caterpillars. Um, but they do a very good, the wrens do sometimes too good a job of pest control to caterpillars I don't consider pests. So does this, you called it BT oil? It's it's a liquid. It's a bacteria. It's a liquid. It's a concentrate. And you just mix that proportions. I don't know. It's a couple tablespoons, I think, to a gallon of water. And then that so that, it's really, really diluted when yeah, you're applying yeah, it's, it. There's, and, yeah, it's, it's enough so that it covers the plant. And what it does is it takes – the bacteria gets on the skin of the nuisance caterpillars because you apply it only to what you have a problem with. Um, and what it does is it basically rots them. What about other wildlife that are in the area around those plants that you're treating? Does it harm – well, like I said, it only it only works on caterpillars, chewing insects. So as long as you apply it only to what you have the problem with and don't start dousing the entire yard with it for no reason. I mean, you sh- any application of an insecticide, and even though this is a natural biocide is what they call it, it's not, it, it acts as an insecticide. Um, as long as you apply it only to the problem area, and that's the way you should do it, um, you're not going to target other things that you don't want to kill. What are some of the other things? We've, we've talked a little bit about pruning and mm-hmm. why you do that during the winter months when the plant is, is dormant. Uh, we've talked about some of the plants that you can start from seeds now and some of the cooler weather herbs that you can plant. What are some of the other things that should be on people's winter garden to-do list? Well, if your perennials are starting to wake up, you don't want to quite fertilize those yet, but say in the next month, as things start to pop out of the ground that have been dormant all winter, you can slowly start to add some fertilizer either to the entire area or just individual plants. Um, you want to get your, your bulbs fertilized as they come up. Some of the bulb foliage will come up in the fall. I start feeding them then. Um, daffodils have been poking up now for the last several weeks. They can be fed because this is the only time of the year where they will reproduce a new bulb for next year, for next year. Um, so you're feeding that plant for the following season. And if you, if you fertilize them now, you can also do it again, say in late, mid, late March before they go dormant to give them one more shot and really bulk up that bulb. So there are things that way that can be done uh, if you're going to be p- working a vegetable garden. When the soil's dry enough, you can start tilling in more compost. If you're using leaves or buying bagged compost, set that down on the ground and just work it in uh, as you go and you know get that done. Work on your winter weeds, like chickweed, get those out of the garden before they start setting even more seed. Um, so a lot of this little nitpicky kinds of things that, you know, just work on that. And then if, if you are weeding out an area, just lightly apply a layer of mulch. Um, you, you can help suppress the weeds, but if you apply it too thick, then when we get rain, it doesn't always penetrate into the ground. It gets stuck in, you know, if you put down three inches of mulch. And be careful when you're mulching not to get it up too close to the trunks of shrubs trees you see in the commercial areas where they come in and they'll throw a whole 
wheelbarrow load of mulch around one single tree, and the next thing you know, it's crawling up the, the, um, the trunk of the tree, and what that'll do is it'll start to rot the trunk, and it'll, it can actually kill the tree. It may take a while to do, but if you repeatedly keep adding mulch around the trunk of the tree, they call it mulch volcanoes, um, you can st you'll start to rot the bark and kill the tree. So how far up, the, where should you be putting mulch then? Like what, what should Just people be thinking about as a right target? Don't get it right up against the trunk. I okay. mean, you can bring it underneath the canopy of the shrub. You can, you know, get it near the trunk of the tree, but don't, don't mound it around the, tr the tree itself. Now, there are a bunch of ferns that are native to southeastern North Carolina, like cinnamon fern, mosquito fern, also known as fairy moss. Um, is the care similar? For, there are so many different kinds of ferns, and you used to sell ferns. Yeah, we sold a lot of ferns. A lot of the ferns that we sold, a number of them were evergreen, and those weren't native. There is a Christmas fern that is evergreen and native to this area, which is very nice. Um, it's not quite as big and robust and dark green as, say, like a holly fern, which is why people love they love that dark green um, here. And um, there are a lot of deciduous ferns that are native. The, 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 um, this is maidenhair ferns that are native. Um, they like it consistently moist but not wet. Um, some of the ferns are very particular. I mean, I've seen maidenhair fern. This was back in Connecticut. There's two different ones. There's a southern variation and a northern one. It was growing on giant granite boulders, big flat boulders in an inch of leaf litter. Now, if I tried to plant that thing on a boulder in leaf litter, it would have never worked. But because it slowly over decades probably worked its way in there, it could grow to the conditions that it had rather than trying to create a condition that doesn't work for a mature plant. Um, but there's the um, ostrich ferns and cinnamon ferns. Um, those are all very nice. They like it moist. They demand to be growing in a damp area. If you try to grow them in a dry area, they will maybe survive for a while, but they're going to succumb when you don't water them. You know, it surprised me looking at one of your newsletters from the winter you talked about how the days are slowly starting to get longer, and so we're getting more sunlight. And so that even affects plants inside the house. It does. just hadn't occurred to me before. Yeah. I, I went outside with the dog last night. It was 6 o'clock, and I could still see. I didn't have to take a flashlight. And it was like all of a sudden it was amazing because before, like 5 o'clock, the sun was down, and at 5.15, you couldn't see your hand in front of you. So we've gained quite a bit. And as I mentioned in that newsletter, yeah, the house plants start to wake up because they're getting longer days. Um, certain things that flower uh, may start to come and bloom more often now because of the longer days and the stronger sun. But I, you also have to watch out, and this is the same outside. You have to, If you've got potted plants, you need to watch the sun, if you've got something that's in the shade that's potted for the winter outside, all of a sudden it's going to start to get more sun and it can start to sunburn. I had that happen. You mentioned in the newsletter, I had that happen to a plant that I had in a guest bathroom and I wasn't paying attention. There was a mirror behind it and the sun came in and the leaf just burned. I mean, it got the sun directly on it and then the reflection on the backside of the leaf. So just, you know, keep an eye open for things like that. You may need to move plants that you've got right into the, in the windowsill back a little bit or move them off to the side of the windowsill where it's not getting as much sun because it is changing and it's wonderful. We are 
just about at the end of our time, but is there anything you want to say to folks about what might be next for you? I'm still trying to figure that out. Um, people have encouraged me to maybe try to write a book, you know, with the new, you know, based on the newsletters. Um, that's a possibility. Um, maybe moving just outside of Wilmington, that's a possibility. I mean, it'd still be here, but, I, you know, maybe Burgar somewhere. Um, just so I can get away from the worst of the day-to-day traffic. And you will definitely be popping up again and again on Coastline. Absolutely. And that's this edition. Tom Erickson, what a pleasure having you back it's with us. It's always great to be here. It's always good, fun to do this with you. Thank you. Coastline's technical director is Ken Campbell. Jonathan Furnell engineered this episode. Coastline is a production of WHQR Public Media. Continue the conversation with us on Facebook. Find us at WHQR's Coastline, hosted by, or send an email to coastline at whqr.org. You can find this episode along with resources at whqr.org. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Coastline.